Saints above and saints below, share the boundless feast. Here where all are treasured, greatest and the least, at this table, all the world's tables, Christ upends. Hungry hearts are fed, as foes and strangers now are friends. Acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with God. Saints today, press on where saints of old have trod. Please be seated. Last weekend, I had the chance to take several of our youth to Happening at Camp Michael. It's a weekend retreat for youth, by youth, that aims to foster fellowship and present our Christian faith in ways that make sense to our teens while really lifting them up for leadership and ministry. So there is a youth rector, youth deacons, youth small group leaders, and the young people offer a series of talks on topics such as reality, forgiveness, grace, the church. Our own All Saints senior, Liz Calabria, gave the talk on faith. And here is a quote from Liz. She said, not every question has a clear answer. Sometimes it's the act of asking the question that brings you closer to God, not the answer. And I wish I could just end the sermon right now and say amen because that's exactly where we land with our friend Job this morning. You know, there's a bit of a Star Wars phenomenon in the Hebrew Bible, because, you know, in Star Wars, episode four, five, and six came out way before one, two, and three. Well, believe it or not, even though Genesis appears first in our Bibles, most scholars agree that Job was actually written first, which tells us that the earliest scriptures were not so much trying to answer the question, where did we come from, as much as why do we humans suffer? It's a question we all wrestle with at one point or another. It's the question Job asked of the Lord beginning in chapter 2. Job was a good and faithful guy. He did everything right. He was good and righteous. Still, he lost everything he had. His health, his wealth, his children. And so he cries out to God asking, God, why? Why me? Why now? Why? Oh God. And God remains silent for 36 more chapters. And so imagine how startled Job must have been when out of the whirlwind, out of the eye of the storm, one translation says, the Almighty breaks through the silence. Before Job has a chance to chime in, God's voice thunders with an unrelenting divine interrogation. Who is this to question my ways? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? If you know it all, then can you send forth lightning or number the clouds? 
These questions demonstrate our human smallness in the face of God's grandeur and majesty and power, yet at the same time, we encounter a God who is deeply personal with Job, who speaks directly to him. Still, God doesn't give any easy answers. What God gives to Job and to us is an assurance of God's presence and solidarity with him in his suffering. Far from coddling him with platitudes, God gets with him in the questioning, in the wrestling, and in fact brings only more questions and sassy questions, I might add. Who do you think you are, Job? Well, in addition to the happening retreat last weekend, it was also Pride Sunday here in Atlanta, which is coincidentally followed by National Coming Out Day, which was Monday, October 11th. So at the convergence of all these events, I was reflecting on Liz's wonderful talk on faith and questioning, and I was reminded of a moment I've returned to again and again over the past decade, And it was when I was asked to give a senior student sermon at our Episcopal campus church during college. And so I was preaching to all my friends about worry. And you remember the story when Jesus says, look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. God takes care of them. I will take care of you. You remember, right? And it was right at the end of the semester during that end-of-the-year pressure cooker that every student knows all too well. And so I asked the congregation, what are you worried about tonight? What's on your heart? Is it that organic chemistry exam coming up next week? Maybe it's the next interview for grad school or a summer internship? Is it your aunt who's in the hospital with cancer? Is it your anxiety around finally, hypothetically, of course, telling your best friend that you're gay? Yes, in case you missed it, I did actually practice coming out in a sermon. (laughs) And if I told my uh, preaching professors in seminary, (laughs) they would have probably died on the spot. Uh, Perhaps a courageous move, definitely kind of cringy, looking back on it. Nevertheless, I played these off as, yes, totally, completely hypothetical scenarios. And to be honest, my friends in the church totally bought it. They didn't think twice, including my best friend who was there. But not our priest, John. No, he didn't buy it. Not for one minute. A couple days later, he said he'd love to debrief the sermon with me. He called me into his office and said, Zach, it's such a wonderful word that you offered. But he said, I I do have one question. And he kind of paused and scratched his head. And finally he asked, so Zach, do you have an aunt in the hospital? (laughs) Checkmate. He knew, to this date, the most ninja priest move I've ever seen talk about a sassy question. Well, that was the beginning of a whole new life, a whole new freedom, new integrity for me. It transformed my life. John, 
my priest listens to what I was saying and to what I wasn't saying. He knew me. He loved me. He was for me. He was my priest. Another one of my priests is sitting right here. When, when I was growing up, Martha Stern, in the second pew on your right, uh, was my priest growing up in Maryville, Tennessee. And I distinctly remember, Martha, I don't know if you do, but I was in the eighth grade, and my parents were going through a divorce. And it was a really hard time. And so we went to Martha. And she took us down to the church basement and kneeled down right with us and prayed with me and my mom. And she said, well, dang it. Except she didn't say dang it. She said the other, the other word. It was the first time I'd ever heard a preacher cuss. <laughs> but boy, did I feel loved. Who have your priests been? Who's opened the door for you? Who's walked you through the valley? I bet if you've been here at All Saints long enough, there are some priests in your life, and I'm not just talking about me and Simon and Andy and Sarah and Karen, and the people who wear collars. But you know, the great legacy of the Reformation is that whether you have a collar around your neck or not, we are all called to be priests in the kingdom of God. Those of us ordained have a special function, sure, but not a superior standing. Every one of us at baptism is marked, anointed, claimed. First, as a monarch. I know we have some queens out here. <laughs> Secondly, as a prophet. We have some prophets, too. Those who are willing and courageous to speak truth to power. And finally, as a priest, we baptized one last week, marched him down the aisle like Simba the lion. We receive you into the household of God. Confess the faith of Christ crucified. Proclaim his resurrection and share with us in his eternal priesthood. Hebrews has much to say about this priesthood, of which Christ is our great high priest, one who did not bypass our human condition, but who offered the sufferings of his own frail flesh and humanity up to God with loud cries and tears from the cross. Jesus wept. Jesus weeps with us. He suffers with us. He is with us in all the places of suffering in our hearts and in our world and throughout all creation. Not a God far off, but one who draws very near. In peculiar power, a power made perfect not in strength, but in gentleness and weakness and vulnerability. Jesus himself demonstrates that God's priestly care and providence can come from the most surprising people and places. According to Jewish tradition, all legitimate priests must be descended from the line of Moses' brother, Aaron. 
However, as the gospel genealogies demonstrate, Jesus was squarely outside the Aaronic priestly line. So how then can Hebrews make a case for identifying Jesus as this great high priest? Well, like a crafty attorney, the author of Hebrews searches the most obscure corners of the biblical canon to justify this move. And he finds his defense and ammunition in the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is probably the first and only sermon you will ever hear about Melchizedek. But hang with me. It's, it's my next to last sermon here, so at least maybe you'll remember it. But who the heck is Melchizedek? Well, the Bible says Melchizedek was uniquely both a priest of the Most High God and a king, the ruler of Salem, or Shalom, the city of peace. Thus he prefigures Christ, the great high priest, and king over God's peaceable kingdom. Melchizedek only shows up a couple times in the Old Testament, but he turns out to be a significant player in the church's understanding of who Jesus is. And we first encounter him in Genesis 14, where he sets a table for Abraham. Abram has just returned from battle against his enemies to save his brother Lot, and when he returns, Melchizedek prepares a feast. And he offers Abram bread and wine, sustenance for the journey. But it's an enigmatic scene, like we find so often in the Bible. As Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, Holy Envy, points out, however authoritatively we Jews and Christians might write about this Melchizedek character, he never became a a, a conventional Jew or Christian. He was a religious stranger from the outside. Like the, ma- the magi who visited the baby Jesus, he entered the story for just a flash, just a brief moment. He offered his blessing and then left, vanished, never to be heard from again. According to her, Melchizedek and the magi and so many like them reveal that God works through religious strangers fringe people, outcasts even. And for reasons that will never be entirely clear, God sometimes sends people from outside a faith community to bless those inside. Now, most conveniently, I must add that for those on the inside, here at All Saints, during this season of courageous giving at All Saints, Did you know that just before Melchizedek vanishes, Abram, in an act of thanksgiving, gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And Melchizedek is actually the first priest in the Bible to receive a tithe. How about that? Indeed, priests are chiefly called to draw out and draw upon the gifts of the community, to make offerings and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people, 
to incite generosity. Of course, Jesus, our great high priest, made the ultimate sacrifice once and for all upon the cross, giving his life as an atonement for sin and conquering death and the grave through the power of his resurrection for good. And if this is true in our lives, then this side of Easter day, we have nothing left to prove, no sin left to atone for. It is finished, Jesus declares on Good Friday. In other words, there are no scorecards in the kingdom of God. God doesn't play the favorites game. And so all this business in our gospel today with James and John, who's the greatest? Give us a seat at your right hand. God does not play that game. Nor do we need any other advocate and mediator before God. For we have direct access to God through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Which means that the offerings we are called and invited to make at this altar, in this community, are truly sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving in a world with so much obligation and guilt and fees and payments. No, we come to this altar out of gratitude, joy, abundance. Beloved, you are priests. We are priests. And to be a priest is so very different than to be a mere patron. At the gym or the club or the subscription, no. We are priests. We participate in this altar at offering all we are and all we have to the glory of God, and we get to do that together out of thanksgiving for what God has done for us. Like Melchizedek, we are called to set the table, to share a feast, to reimagine the boundaries between insiders and outsiders, to reconsider what leadership could look like and where wisdom can come from, calling saints and sinners of all sorts to wrestle with the hard questions, to ask the sassy ones, to have their voices heard, to be known, to be loved, to claim their inheritance as monarchs, prophets, and priests for the sake of love. What if we took that seriously? Not patrons, but priests. My friends, in the end, we have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. He is ever ministering to our souls, interceding for us before the very throne of God, whispering those incisive questions to the very depths of our hearts and souls, speaking to our hearts, transforming our lives and transforming our world, opening the doors, walking us through the valley and into freedom. This Jesus is the head of this church and the author of our salvation. 
How have you experienced this great priestly love in your life, in this community, in this place? My last Sunday here is December 5th. And so as the one ordained priest in the room who truly doesn't need your money, (laughs) I invite you to consider where has God met you in the whirlwind and carried you through? And how is this God calling, inviting you to give courageously for the kingdom of God and for the work of the priesthood of all believers that we share in the order of Melchizedek. Amen.